Their language must be based on a root dialect. It's just like the Tower of Babel. Well, maybe English is in there somewhere. Go. You must speak with my father now. Hello and welcome to the Intermillennium Media Project, the IMMP. I'm Ian Porter. And I'm Matthew Porter. He's my dad, I'm his son, and I have taken over once more. The Millennial Strikes Back again. Again. I continue to do so. But this one, I was excited to do this one. I've been waiting on this one. It's not just that you got tired of the Arctic and the Antarctic. (laughs) Oh, no. I got excited by them. This gave me an, a wonderful chance to share a movie that had a weirdly large impact on me. A movie that I... It's one of the movies I remember going to see in a theater so clearly. It doesn't... It didn't just happen. It's like I've got a, a memory of exactly which theater and when we went to it. Because in 2001, around the time this movie came out, a little after, still in theaters... We went and saw Atlantis, the Lost Empire by Disney. I remember the, uh, taking you to see this very clearly as well, because it was a summer day. It was beastly hot and we had a power outage. Yes. And we decided, no, we're not going to stay in this house without any fans or anything or air conditioning. I don't even, don't even think that house had air conditioning. I don't think it did. It was just like we... We had no way way to run fans or anything. We decided we were going to go to a movie theater that was air conditioned and, uh, and spend a couple of hours there. And it was wonderful because I remember getting to see this movie, this wild animated spectacle action movie and coming home, the power was still out, but a rainstorm had started. And I spent two times the runtime of this movie staring out the window, watching rain, watching water fall (laughs) on the place I live. And my mind, like, just just put in the, like, the nebula explosion in the background at half opacity meme, my mind going huge, thinking about the Atlantis movie and the (laughs) rainstorm coming down after I've seen it. So this made a big impression on you. This had made a big impression on me. And then later, as I've started to appreciate the design and the art, and I got into the product design and the the styling that goes into pieces like this, I relatched onto this movie because this movie, it does interesting things with its visuals and with its art combining the newest and the oldest techniques they had at Disney. This is a 2001 movie that feels like one of those transition points in the industry. Oh, it absolutely is. It was uh, was a a Disney feature animation film, so it's considered a kind of a traditional animation, but it used more CGI than any Disney animation film had uh, up to that point, especially for things like backgrounds, specific models for certain devices and the like. Yeah, this this is a movie where an anamorphic... Uh, screen ratio background is shown with traditionally animated Disney characters in pilot seats of CGI 
flying stone fish hovercraft thingies all in one scene with explosions and lighting effects cast upon all of them. Now, there are some scenes and some shots in which this leads to what I think of as the color forms effect, where it looks as if everything is separate and they're not they're they're slightly clumsily layered, or at least they don't seem to mesh very well. And like I, I've said this about other kinds of effects too. There are some scenes in which I see that and it distracts me. There are other scenes in which I see that and it works because the different styles, the different types of imaging suggest different worlds and suggest magic versus technology and other interesting things like that. Those differences can be used used in storytelling. They can. And to give an idea of what kind of story this movie is, I'm going to just read you the line that was on the production t-shirts in Disney. Atlantis, fewer songs, more explosions. (laughs) That was the crew t-shirts for the animation department at Disney making this movie. And that's interesting when you consider the fact that this is the same director's Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise, and the same producer, Tab Murphy, who were behind Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, which is also very wild and bombastic. And interestingly enough, the previous uh, co-story head of Mulan joined the project, but left to go make Lilo and Stitch during production. So there's another through line connecting a lot of other Disney properties. This, This movie does act as kind of a a crossroads where a lot of different parts of the Disney mechanics came together and then branched off into other things. But for one moment, right when they were actually facing some competition from things like Shrek for the first time in theaters in ways they hadn't dealt with, this is what they came out with and, and put their foot forward with. Yeah, I think that that is very true. And I think that the, let's say, limited success of The Hunchback of Notre Dame showed Disney that their formula of musical adaptations of classic tales was no longer bulletproof. It had carried them through this renaissance in the 80s and 90s. And you can say that they just made bad choices about The Hunchback of Notre Dame, or you can say that they just sort of got to the natural end of the cycle where that kind of movie was a guaranteed moneymaker. But regardless, it, it showed them that they needed to change. So it's interesting to see the different things they attempted when they knew that that change was inevitable. Yeah. And, and I've got mixed feelings about this movie. Of course, you know, it did not have the impact on me that it, it would have on a nine-year-old. But... There are a lot of things I appreciate about this movie, a lot of things I admire about this movie, and ultimately, I'm somewhat disappointed at them all not all coming together as well as they should. It doesn't come together in as good a movie as I would expect given all the great parts between the cast, the technology they used, the fact that production design was by Mike Mignola, who was creator of Hellboy and has such a great artistic vision when it comes to visualizing weird and magical things. Oh, yeah. All these pieces should should add up to a masterpiece. And I've had to rethink things because it's unfair to 
criticize a movie because you expected an absolute masterpiece, and this wasn't an absolute masterpiece. I've had to back up and say, is this a good movie for its, its, its own, uh, taken in its own right? And that's a different question. It is. Well, sounds like this is the best point to start actually going through the movie, and yeah. we can hit other points as we go. Mm-hmm. So the movie starts out as one would expect a movie about Atlantis with the sinking of Atlantis. And we get a very, very clear everyone running from a disaster as buildings fall and everything else. Opening disaster movie stuff. And it's interestingly ambiguous because it appears to be some kind of attack. And yet it's not clear that there is an attacker or what is actually happening. Yeah, there's a giant wall. There's a defense system. There's also kind of an alien invasion feel going on as a giant searchlight from a floating thingy selects the queen and pulls her into the sky. So you're talking Atlantis, UFOs, ancient civilizations. Yeah, sign me up. This is my kind of movie. It is your kind of movie. Absolutely. And then smash cut to hijinks. (laughs) Yes. We go to to Michael J. Fox being extremely Michael J. Fox. Extremely Michael J. Fox. They finally drew a character as lanky as his voice sounds. (laughs) Yes, it fits very well. It does. Milo is a is an anatomical skeleton model with large glasses that marionettes his way through scenes <laughs> in a desperate attempt to get someone to listen to his conspiracy theory. <laughs> and I'm they do a good job of making him simultaneously likable and pitiable. <laughs> and yet to jump ahead later on in the movie when thanks to adventuring he loses his shirt for a while they do show him as being a little more buff than you would expect they do he is a little bit like it starts out you're like what and then by the end you're like oh action hero i see it okay and i i do have a soft spot for any movie that's going to combine that hyper academic monomaniac with an action hero Yes. And we we see the fact that his his work at the Smithsonian is not going great because he doesn't actually work in the academia, he works in the boiler room. <laughs> he's like he he's the department of like ancient languages and linguistics, but that department does not get a lot of funding, so he also has to tend to the boiler. But they do an interesting job of showing him being able to adjust a boiler by twirling a few knobs and hitting it with a wrench he's got off to the side at just the right angle and it gives it's it's a in terms of a save the cat moment it's not a why he's the hero but it does show a man to be competent in a way that lets us then have all of the he sounds crazy wildness that's a good point he's not just focused on the work that he wants to do he's competent and he's observant so he can learn things on the fly, like how to mend boilers. And that, of course, shows up later, that the fact that he really does have a lot of the makings of an action hero, even though he has spent most of his career in the basement, translating ancient texts and trying to follow the clues to the location of Atlantis. Yeah, well, he's not even thinking he can get to Atlantis first. He thinks he can get a book that might explain where Atlantis is. And they and he does this entire like presentation explaining what it, what this adventure will be, and we get 
his his pitch is rejected. He's going to resign from from the museum and try his best. I don't know what he plans to do, but he's this fed up. And all of this is sort of following in the wake of his of his grandfather, who had spent his career finding all these clues about Atlantis and trying to track them down. And in the eyes of the bigwigs of the Smithsonian, having thrown away his career on this craziness, and they're trying to convince Milo, you know, stay in your linguistics department, stay in the boiler room, don't throw your career away like your grandfather did. And when he arrives at his apartment, it's empty, and there's just a a, a woman there sitting there in one of the remaining chairs. <laughs> a great moment that's shot with a very film noir. Suddenly, he's faced with a femme fatale. Oh yeah, it's, it's a neat little shot. Well, well animated. This is a character drawn in a similar nature to the way they drew Jessica Rabbit in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I'd say with the way they like to draw her. Yeah, just going to point that out. They, you they, combine they, Jessica Rabbit with Lara Croft. Yeah, and you get this character you Helga this, Sinclair. Her, Helga Sinclair, who is is kind of the. The call to adventure character, because she literally grabs him and says, you're working with us now, and throws him into a car and <laughs> takes him off to meet a new benefactor. Which, yeah, that sounds suspicious. And then we meet this new benefactor, who is a friend of his old grandfather's, and is apparently ludicrously rich and kind of weird. In multiple ways. It played by John Mahoney. Yes. Who is such a great character actor. Animation fans would know him from probably the best American animated feature ever made, The Iron Giant. Yes. And he he plays this slightly crazy person who sort of, he he owes something to the memory of Milo's grandfather, so he has is mounting this mission. And when you say mounting this mission, we mean... He's already gotten a team, and he has already had that team recover the MacGuffin that the entire opening suggested was Milo's goal. <laughs> and we watch as, as this story jumps ahead an entire section of plot from what it established straight into, we have a submarine, a massive crew, all of your stuff's packed, you're on a trip. And, and it is significant that this guy's team was able to find the book because they they essentially followed the same clue that Milo had figured out. So it also shows that Milo knows his stuff, and if he had only been able to get financing from the Smithsonian, he would have been able to find the book because he was on the right track. It just happens that this rich guy who was following his grandfather's research and apparently has been following Milo's research had the money to actually do it. Yeah, And that means he has the money to follow what the book tells them about the location of Atlantis. Exactly. And this is also where we get one of the, the coolest CG models, I think, in the entire movie. And that would be the submarine. Yes. The submarine Ulysses is this amazing design. It takes a lot of reference and a lot of style. From Disney's version of the Nautilus. Very much, very much. Yes, because this entire movie is set in 1914. So that gives you an idea of the technology we're dealing with. And this is a giant 
deep sea submarine in that that style with the giant plate glass and the big rivets and everything. Yes, it's that that industrial punk sort of look. It's the, you take the basic idea of the Nautilus, make it bigger, and give it more glass. I guess with the idea being that glass and reinforcement technology has had decades to improve. So it really is a nice, it's an original design, but there's a certain fondness in its references to the uh, the Nautilus. There's something about the, the way the Ulysses is designed that, especially with some of the features we see it have later, it makes it feel almost more spaceship-like in some ways with its deployable little pods and its its cannon mountings and such. There's something about it that just makes me think more Star Wars in that sense. You're right. You're right. It does have that sort of... And, and a lot of this this adventure has a certain space exploration feel. Yeah. There are these references uh, to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I, I notice certain echoes of things like the first men in the moon and that kind of... Victorian take on high-tech exploration. Yeah. The kind of thing where a couple of decades later, it's what the guys in at the Mountains of Madness are doing with airplanes. Yes. And that's one of the things that makes me want to show this one after the last two things we've talked about, because this is Mountains of Madness style, a massive expedition being charted to see and find an unknown thing in a hard to reach place. And Ice Station Zebra-like, it's a lot of military tech stuff going on and a giant submarine trip. And there's an aspect of whose agenda is what? Who's, who's, what, what plans do people really have and who can we trust? Yeah. And we mentioned John Mahoney. We should also mention that the, there's more really interesting casting. Yeah, and we get, to, got, we get to meet them as everyone gets onto the, the ship. Yeah, we've got that classic here's the team kind of scene. James Garner playing the colonel, the military leader of this expedition, and Don Novello, also known as Father Guido Sarducci, playing the demolitions expert. Yes. And, and he's probably the most distinctive, that's Don Novello character, but he's one of the, the team of specialists. There's the mechanic, there's the explosives guy, there's the- The medic. The, the medic. The, was that Dr. Sweets? Yep. The the excavation guy, who's this kind of creepy Frenchman who likes dirt and digging far too much, very mole-like. Yeah. And and it's it's a it's a typical cartoony. Everybody is very caricatured. They each have their specialty, but a time enough time is taken to give each of them a character. And we you even take time later in a relatively short movie to learn more about what got them into the specialty that they're in. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. And it's not just always their interactions with Milo. We get interactions with ev every person with each other. They mm -hmm. go through a whole little chart of you know, the handshakes of who, who interacts with who and how they do so. And it's really fun. And I gotta say, the team has some of the best lines across everything. Now, a lot of them do come from the demolitions <laughs> expert. Yes. He, he has good. some of the best lines. <laughs> but this is a team that has a personality and a wittiness to their writing that feels like some of these more classic adventure movies. There is a speed at which these characters talk with each other and quip back and forth 
that feels older and more classic, it feels like some of the movies you'll show me that are these linchpins of certain genres, I think, more than modern Disney movies. Oh, that's interesting. So is is this the first example of that kind of thing you can remember seeing it's compared to say you know a star wars movie which which treats dialogue in a very different way for example yeah i, uh, I kind of do this is one of those movies that got me into that that quick dialogue those short interactions that that witticism yeah i like the idea that years later when i showed you the rockford files for this podcast you had some reference to James Garner because he had been the voice of of a character in this movie. Absolutely. And I'd gotten to see him in this movie throwing little quips back when someone else is talking about something <laughs> back and forth. That's just that means I'm already prepped for it. This is a good introduction to get a a kid into that sort of stuff I felt. <laughs> well, that's cool. Oh yeah. So we've got this team, they've got a mission but fortunately, they've got this giant high-tech submarine that's going to keep them safe for the entire time. Did we mention there's a Leviathan? <laughs> no, I don't think we'd gotten to that. I don't think so. Because they dive, and they're going to make their way through a giant tunnel that goes lower, and then they're going to come up into where Atlantis is supposedly stored. Like, Atlantis is in this subterranean air pocket. Uh, which can be only accessed under the from under the ocean. Yeah, so it's like sitting on the edge of a dormant volcano in this air pocket, and they've got to go in and under through the edge of the volcano and up. And doing so is made much more difficult by the giant creature that guards the entrance to Atlantis. Which Milo can kind of prepare them for because he's got the ancient writings that he's translated and talks about this monster and then he's talking about well it's probably a metaphor for something else no it's a monster well it's not just a monster it's a robot it's a machine monster yeah it's a giant mechanical lobster bot with lasers so we get these these extended scenes of these two cgi models fighting each other and lots of little tiny escape pods and and attack craft trying to fend off the the monster trying to buy time and we lose a lot of people there is a lot of carnage in this disney family adventure do not attempt attempting to calculate the sheer number of casualties in atlantis the lost empire is terrifying now we could act, we could do the math because there's a scene a scene shortly after when those who survive get where they need to go, and they're, they're on, on the beach. And the colonel gives a little speech about how many souls they began with, yeah. and how many lost their lives to get us here. And you can see in that scene, there are only a few dozen left, and it was over 200 that they started with. Yeah. So it was not only all the people in the, the, the fighter craft who, who did not survive, but anybody who hadn't made it to an escape pod in the Ulysses, because the Ulysses is destroyed... Yeah. <laughs> High body count for a Disney movie. High body count for a Disney movie. And I will say the color forms effect does come into play because you can kind of tell who's going to make it by the level of detail of their animation <laughs> right. model. Yeah, let's not, let's, let's not take too much time on that model because we won't need it past uh, the 40-minute mark. Yeah, that's <laughs> a bit of a problem. And But this also does tie back into the Mountains of Madness aspect where I don't think you can hide a project this big when you're launching it with that many people. 
I get the feeling this is probably going to be known as being an expedition of something somewhere. I suppose so. I, I get the impression that the, uh, the guy behind this, the John Mahoney character, is always up to enough weirdness that this, he might have been able to make sure this got lost in the static. Yeah, it's one weird thing that he's spending some of his money on. He's sending people yeah, someplace in a, in a, a new boat of some kind. Maybe yeah, not, but maybe but may- not. Maybe he had a chance of keeping it, if not secret, at least ob- obfuscated. Mm-hmm. They're now making this trek on caravan of the the trucks and such they could carry with them, which also is very interesting because you've got very much Troishka like trip where we go from <laughs> giant submarine to small watercraft to trucks out of the small watercraft to on foot out of the trucks. And they did salvage more equipment than I expected that they had uh, based upon the, what we see of the battle, because they do have some big trucks and lots of supplies, a giant specialized drilling. digging machine, yeah. drilling machines, uh, uh, balloons, most of what they would need to continue the, the mission. Although A large amount of explosives. <laughs> this kind of suggests, now that I think about it, in terms of provisioning things like escape pods... Maybe somebody prioritized saving the equipment they'd need to continue the mission over necessarily prioritizing escape pods for the entire crew. Welcome to some of the fridge horror of Atlantis The Lost (laughs) Empire. This movie is weird and crazy. This is a movie where multiple things in it will do exactly what you've just done. And you go, oh. (laughs) Because... We've, we're hinting it already, but we're, we'll get to more about why in a bit. But then they've got the expedition portion, and this is some of the most beautiful scenes, I think, of it, as we get these large painted backdrops of them marching along through these environments. Yeah, this is where the color form effect is most striking, but also makes the most sense and works the best. So that balance is okay with me. And, and this has some of the best moments with them trying to set up tents. We learn about why the characters all joined. All of them have some financial reason back home to take a mission this dangerous because of the pay. Right. And it's not just they want money. There's something about their past or their family or something. They have a goal that they want to achieve. And being able to achieve that goal means getting this money. Mm-hmm. Some some wonderful lines like the time they built a bridge. It must have taken hundreds, no, thousands of years to carve this thing. Hey, look, I made a bridge. It only took me like, what, 10 seconds, 11 taps. I love that scene. But we watch as we go through and the entire time Milo is reading more of the more of the book and learning more and more. And studying this book he's always wanted to have and learning about the Atlantis they're going to come up across. Now, you would have thought that for an, an expedition this important and this expensive, they would have given him some time with the book to help them prepare better for it. You would And have. that's not what happened here. He essentially was shown, yeah, we, by the way, we have the book. By the way, here's the submarine. Get on. Read it on the flight. Right. <laughs> well, get, get in the submarine, Milo. <laughs> <laughs> but they make it through in through various more dangerous things like lightning bugs that will set you on fire as a security <laughs> system 
the inside of a dormant, but not too dormant, volcano. And finally, they make it into the bubble and to Atlantis. And meet Atlanteans. And meet Atlanteans. That little girl we saw, like, losing her dolly in the classic scene in the opening, you know, the, the, the disaster movie scene. A little girl drops her doll. Ah, things are going on during the thing. Guess what? She's grown up now. Wait well, a minute. How long ago was that? You would think she, that she would have grown up somewhat because it's been thousands of years. Years. Oh. <laughs> Atlanteans have some interesting stuff. They also speak a language. A spoken and written language that is all throughout this movie. And they got some linguist to actually make it. They just like created a new language for this movie? Yeah, apparently like this guy had worked on something else before and so they got him and I don't know what this Oh right, it's like science fiction movies where there's yeah. some alien race they needed a language for. Yeah, and I mean apparently, you know, they thought he did a good job with that one, and they're like, oh, yeah, hey, you want to make ours? And he's like, oh, sure, I'll add that one in. <laughs> but the guy builds an entire language that you can actually go and learn and such. I mean, <laughs> imagine if one of those were actually take off. But we meet her. What, what's her name again? Kida. Kida. Okay, so we meet Kida, who was the little girl and is now, you know, a young woman, mm-hmm. thousands of years later. We meet her father, who's, who's played by Ka- uh, Leonard Nimoy. Good character, actor. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to show you other things that he's done, uh, some TV shows. Before this, I mean, he'd done some science fiction TV shows in the 60s. He was in Mission Impossible. That's, yes, he was in Mission Impossible. And he's playing her father, who now, thousands of years after the fall of Atlantis, is getting old enough that he's approaching the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And lots of other Atlanteans, but things aren't great in their little isolated city of Atlantis. Yeah, they're making it work, but they're not they're not what they had been. They don't like know how to read their own language anymore. Yeah. A lot of things are crumbling, their food supplies are are declining. And it's like things have waned slowly, but waned over the, the millennia. Yeah, and here comes this brand new group of people, and one of them suddenly can speak rough, but speak Atlantean. He starts <laughs> talking with them, and it's a little awkward because the king doesn't want them there. Gives them a bit of time to get out, until they learn this guy can also read Atlantean. And the Atlanteans somehow also speak a lot of modern languages. They speak modern English and modern French. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. I can understand if they... it's. It's like spoke some of the precursors to these languages. Yeah, it's said that like their thing is a root language so they can figure out ours. It's like, wouldn't that be nice? That would be really nice <laughs> if you could just learn Latin and know everything. <laughs> oh, or half of everything. You'd have to learn <laughs> something else to figure out the other half. Yeah, Latin, Greek, ancient German, you've got a whole lot of English. <laughs> yeah, you do. That's pretty much, yeah, that's a lot of English right there, so. But it's like, that's a, that's a very that's a very fortunate. Oh yeah, we're all good, <laughs> right? So we don't need to have subtitles through the whole rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And we also do see that they've got some of their magic still. Yeah, Kida is able to heal Milo from a cut using a magic crystal. And it seems like all of the Atlanteans have these crystals around their necks, or most of them do. Yeah, maybe that's doing some sort of translation or the like to help. Who knows? <laughs> 
but you this is now we're we've been put on the timer to leave but milo is being brought around by kita to see all the things uh she she knows of that yeah. he can read and explain how to use and that timer comes from the king who does not want these outsiders and he relented he decided okay i'm not going to kill you right away you're still here tomorrow i'll kill you yeah and and uh kita gives them a little bit like buys them a bit more time by pleading with her father like let right. them at least like recover gather their stuff properly and leave properly instead of just running out of here into danger but yeah the king takes the king takes one look at james garner's character and says nope get out <laughs> very astute very astute because as milo figures out more things he figures out how to turn on atlantean hover bikes and crash Atlantean hoverbikes. <laughs> As he learns how to read about what the defense systems that protected Atlantis so long ago are, and that there is a giant crystal, the heart of Atlantis, that powers everything. And at the very beginning of this mission, there was this understanding, something that Milo and his grandfather had figured out, that the Atlanteans apparently had some tremendous power source. And that's one of the reasons why it would be worth discovering Atlantis to recover the power source that might be left in the ruins of this long dead civilization. Yeah. Uh, they never expected to find living Atlanteans. Yeah. They thought, oh yeah, we're going to go find some rocks, pick up the shiny one and leave. <laughs> but, um, huh, there's an entire people here. And this changes things for Milo when he realizes, no, this, there is a power here and these people need it to survive. That changes everything. It doesn't necessarily change everything for the colonel. Because the because this is where the colonel shows up and says, Hi, I'm the bad guy. I'll be your bad guy for the day. Everyone else, fall <laughs> in line. We're bad guys. <laughs> Did you wonder why we had such a low worry about the rest of our crew? Why we had so many guns on our way here? Did you wonder why we brought this much explosives? Turns out, we're the bad guys. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's like, this is one of those moments where that, for a kid, it was a big revelation. Oh, that twist was, was that major, twist huh? hit me as an adult. I can understand. I'd see it coming. I can also watch it again and go, oh, dang it. They telegraphed this thing the entire way. The guy that funded you gave you a no way out. I've already stolen and packed all your stuff. Get on the submarine. <laughs> this is shady all the way up to the top. <laughs> oh, I should have noticed that. But they, they immediately like come in and like shoot the king. Yes. It's like, this is a Disney movie with a lot of pulling pistols on people, which is kind <laughs> of wild. Yeah. But, yeah, they don't care. This is about the payday. This is about getting the money. This is about get rich, leave with the artifacts. The fact that there are people here doesn't change things for the, for the colonel. So it becomes time for Milo to decide, is he going to fall in line behind the colonel? It's time for the other characters to decide as well. Because, of course, Milo, being our hero, sides with the Atlanteans and wants to help them preserve their civilization. They've, including helping them improve things because he can teach them about their technology that they have forgotten. And of course, there's also the benefit of the fact that there's been a lot of sparks between the uh, Princess Kida and Milo. Of course. 
A, a very very cute sets of like swimming down to see the ruins and read stuff scenes with a bunch of like oh every time we pop a bag back up out of the water we're a little closer together and a little closer together and you know it's yeah you know, once once a girl learns that a guy's able to read you know that goes a long way <laughs> actually that's also when he does take off his shirt and reveal oh you're kind of action hero build aren't you that kind of also synchronizes right. Eh. So we've got Milo and the Atlanteans on one side. We've got the Colonel and Helga and the people loyal to them on the other side. And then we've got the little cadre of specialists who we've gotten to know, and they all have to make a choice. And they're falling in line because they need the pay, but they're also a little disturbed that there's people here and that that's a problem. And after violence is immediately enacted upon these people and... Milo is forced at gunpoint with Kida to go down to the chamber with the actual heart of Atlantis. The questions start coming in about, are we going to do this? Are we sticking with these people who are acting this way? Hmm. And we learn why Atlantis has not been the thriving Magitechno metropolis. It's because the heart of Atlantis is kind of psychic and kind of takes like the queen took the queen as a tribute to power the defense system (laughs) yeah and it keeps doing this since the king didn't want to give it his daughter to make the city work again which is really really a wild setup yeah that's another oh oh that's dark disney that's not even the bad guys dark that's just a why'd you build your magic system that way dark a little more uh a little more of a lovecraft connection that we might have expected from disney yeah yeah, these ancient beings want this tribute, mm-hmm. and they'll they will slowly keep you alive less if you don't deliver. That's just mm, uh. Atlantis: The Lost Empire. The weight of what of Disney movies? <laughs> but of course, in order to actually save the day, Kida does let the 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 power take her so she can reactivate Atlantis and it sort of possesses her and turns her into this crystal being yeah she kind of you know comes down as this glowy entity that walks upon the water back to back to them and then is immediately captured by our bad guys and put into a chamber right you know what is what does the colonel do and Helga and their their friends they put her in a box hook her up to a balloon and plan to blow up the dormant volcano to open its chimney so that she can, they, they can take this balloon out. Yeah, that might destroy Atlantis, but we're taking their power source anyway, so they're going to die no matter what. One thing, did they intend to blow up the volcano to leave at first or no? I'm it, confused. I don't know if that was necessarily their plan A for escape, but they were very well prepared for it just in case. Yeah. With this special... Yeah, rapid vertical ascent balloon, etc. But upon coming back up, our our ragtag group of fun characters does in fact choose the side of Milo and the Atlanteans and starts fighting back. And the Atlanteans also, as Milo teaches them how to ride their hover bikes and rally them together. Yeah, it's like I've I, I figured out so this is the last stand of Atlantis to reclaim their princess and their power source. 
Princess Power Source. <laughs> uh, and we did we did sort of get a magical girl transformation scene when she's taken over by the ancient gods. We did. Which now it, now when I said that out loud, it has me thinking of H.P. Lovecraft's Sailor Moon. Yes, <laughs> that would be amazing. And it's also kind of just that's Madoka, Madoka Magica. <laughs> yeah, that's Ma- that's just Madoka Magica. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I do appreciate the, the giant balloon fight as it's this rising and falling combat of Helga and the, and the Colonel rising up. Well, all of this will be mine. We were going to split 50, 50 about that knocks Helga off the balloon. It's like <laughs> bad guy will betray bad guy. No, <laughs> I'm sorry. I have to back up a second. When you just say balloon fight, I'm picturing people <laughs> holding balloons with a little gubba, gubba, gubba. <laughs> Popping each other on the head with them, which would be pretty amusing. But this is a long, this is a, a aerial combat scene where we've got planes, which I some kind of aircraft that the bad guys brought with them, yeah. along with the balloon and the hover bikes, and all of this dogfighting and everything else around the giant balloon, where things like the fight between the colonel and Helga are happening. It is a long and intricate scene. In some ways, I think it might be a little too long. Yeah, but. There's a lot of detail to it, and it's interesting. It's interesting to watch. It's well done. When they said more explosions, they were not kidding. This is an interesting fight sequence, and to to reference a movie that is more current, there's a lot of the way they do these fight sequences that I see in the Avatar movies now. Oh, there's a lot of interesting connection there with the way Disney portrays all of this, for good and for ill. A group coming in to steal something important with a lot of technology of the time and a group of people from a place doing stuff to fight back. That's a classic story. But the way Disney likes to show that and the way Disney likes to show how you take over, I I think that's definitely some of this because there's some connection here. You're talking specific aspects of like the action blocking and blocking and the such. This is a Disney way to show this kind of fight scene is my point. I get that. Yeah, this is not the same as you would see it in the late 70s and the original star wars movies for example right it's a there are certain shots that i feel disney likes to use for those kind of action moments and this is one of those examples but you can go to a theater and see another right now i like that yeah and this does involve one of the grisliest disney villain deaths i think i've ever seen because during the fight uh our our crystalline princess does get out of her cage for a bit Milo is fist fighting the colonel and not doing great, but at least causing enough destruction on the the airship, which is a combination balloon with multiple spinning propellers under a platform to help lift it faster. And the colonel gets beaten up. The balloon is shot by an angry revenge-seeking Helga and explodes in a giant fireball of hydrogen balloon explosion. And then he's touched by Kida and turn the colonel is touched by Kida and turned into crystal and he falls through the propeller blades of his own escape ship. Yeah, this is This is pretty I mean, grisly. People people look at like, oh yeah, we're going to knock Gaston off the top of the tower during Beauty and the Beast and have him fall to the death and if you pause the animation there's little skulls in his eyes. Great. We don't see him shatter. <laughs> I can almost imagine them them blocking this scene and saying, okay, then 
Finally, the explosion knocks him off the, the balloon, and he falls through the propellers. And somebody at Disney is saying, cool, but really gross, really graphic. We can't put that in a Disney adventure movie. And then they think for a while, okay, how about Keita turns him into rocks first? <laughs> then it's not a flesh and blood human then falling through the propellers. It's this Statue. rock golem. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Oh, yeah, we can get away with that because rocks don't have blood. Never mind the fact that this person just went through this transformation into rock. Yeah, it is a gruesome fight. But it ends with dragging uh, the the capsule with, of Kida back out with Milo clinging onto it, back out on a chain with a, an Atlantean hovercraft as the volcano explodes. <laughs> yes. And back into Atlantis to save themselves from the volcano and warn Atlantis, by the way, your next door volcano is exploding. (laughs) But by this time, Kida has kind of control over this power to some extent, and she can power these defense systems. Yeah, there is a worry by the king that too much of this would have killed her, that it, it could take too much of her. But she's kind of finding a balance there, and she powers up the defense systems, and we get a really cool moment where we see the same giant wall that protected Atlantis in the opening scene from the giant flood protects Atlantis again from a wall of magma coming over. You know, there there was the apocalypse of water that we saw this defend against, and now we see an apocalypse of fire be be stopped by the same thing. And that's something where I'm sure there was a lot of CGI in that, and it doesn't have that color form effect. It all seems very integrated. I like the way that's shot. Mm-hmm. And it ends with the entity putting Kita back and leaving her with the little doll she dropped. <laughs> because apparent, or, 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 or not, it wasn't with the doll. It was oh, it, the wasn't, it was like a bracelet, mother, right? Her, the bracelet her mother had, which kind of implies her mom's still in there and didn't let it take her. Because this ancient power is actually, you know, they're all of their kings of old, their ancient royalty, are the energy-producing god figures. Yeah. And that's confirmed and, and emphasized later when Kida's dad does pass away after all of this and joins the gods in the infinite power. And this is where we then get the how it all wraps up montage, where the Atlanteans, grateful for betraying the betrayers and actually siding with them <laughs> right helping them defend helping them defend gives some riches and some uh, some reward to our adventuring team right and they may have been getting low on food and have forgotten how to read but the atlanteans still had a lot of gold yeah so a lot of gold uh and milo will stay with the atlanteans to help them rebuild their civilization and to be with Kita. A, a predictable ending, but it, it's wrapped up well. It fits each of the characters very well. And it ends seeing years, uh, like a couple of years later, with all of the, uh, with all of the people fabulously wealthy. They're all in fancy suits and outfits. And- oh, I didn't think that was too much later. I thought it was just oh. them going back to report on the guy who financed it all. 
I think it's a little bit later because they've all been able to have some of their projects started and such. Oh, There's that's some true. implication yeah. of like all of their all of these dreams they talked about being able to have are starting to come true. And they were essentially explaining to him how the project was a bust. Yeah. We didn't find anything, it was all gone. Yeah, it's like explaining <laughs> the story of like, oh, this is everything. <laughs> and part of the ending is uh our our crazy investor being given a note very similar to the note that he showed Milo's father had given him saying, Hey, I'm here. I'm safe. This was excellent. Thank you. You know, my grandpa would be happy with this and giving, giving the old guy one of Atlantis's crystals, one little bit of that technology. But these are the same ones that were keeping the Atlanteans alive for so long. So this old guy who was doing one of his last hurrah projects after a lifetime of Accruing wealth because, ah, oh, yeah, my time's coming. I'm going to be gone soon. He's being given a piece of immortality as his reward for funding this, which is another one of those things I don't know how to feel about at the end of this movie. Well, the way that, that he reacts to things is what makes it clear that he wasn't really the bad guy. Yeah. In that he, and this is what Milo and what Milo's grandfather expected, thought that the people of Atlantis were long gone. And that this, if, but if they could find this power source and bring it back to the modern world, it would have wonderful benefits to the entire human race. And it was the Colonel and Helga and the people loyal to them who thought, yes, absolutely. And I'm going to be very well paid for it. And I don't care whether or not the Atlanteans are still there. I think if given that decision, the old man would have said, no, wait a minute, let's rethink this if there's a civilization that relies upon this power source we expected to find hmm. and i so i think that he kind of he's more i think he's more satisfied with having paid the debt that he owed to milo's grandfather and helped prove that milo's grandfather was right about something than he than he would have been about getting this power source yeah that makes some sense and our, our final scene after 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 that gift and that where everyone else will be, we see Milo and Kida having just uh, sent a giant stone mask of Kida's dad, the previous king of Atlantis, floating up to join all the other floating masks as part of the <laughs> the giant ball in a increasingly uh, in a glowing and starting to rebuild Atlantis. Oh, and I have to say something about these masks, and it's like this ring of masks surrounding a giant glowing crystal light, yeah. and they spin around. Whoever designed that part of this movie was a fan of Tron. Yes. Doesn't that look like the MCP? This is so MCP Tron-like in that sense. You're right. I, I admit, a, a story thing starting in the year 2001 that's heavily reliant on masks and glowing techno-magical abilities. It reminds me of a certain Lego property that I was also in love with, which <laughs> oh. will have to be a topic of a future episode when yeah, I take I over again. That. You were a huge fan of that. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I bet there's a couple of our listeners of my, of my group of, of age ranges who could have guessed I was a fan of that, <laughs> of that Lego license product. But yeah, there's just a lot of things that that feels similar to, and that makes it very, like, it's quick to understand stylistically, I think. Looking back on it, it seems more fixed in that specific time period than it even felt at the time. 
It yeah. seemed like this innovative thing, this weird experiment by Disney, but now it seems so very much a product of that turn of the millennium 2001 kind of era. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's the end of Atlantis the Lost Empire. I think that's leading us into our questions, but this is this movie is definitely it's much more of an action adventure movie overall. It's not a it's not some of the other Disney fare. It's and they shot it very much intending that. I say shot, it's animated, but they animated it in in anamorphic widescreen. They wanted it to have that Raiders of the Lost Ark, giant epic, almost cinerama kind of view to it. And it shows it that influences the way they put scenes together, the way the action is blocked. It feels more like those, at least as much like those kinds of movies as it does like any other Disney animation. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, okay. So, Dad, Atlantis the Lost Empire, screen or no screen? Screen. Screen. I'm with you. I don't know that I would have said this a couple of weeks ago, just remembering having seen it 20 years ago. But having watched it again, because you brought it up, I'm th- yeah, this was a pretty good movie. I enjoyed this. It was yeah. a good, solid, you know, maybe 90-minute running time. Well-paced, great character acting for the, from the voice cast. I say screen. Absolutely. Okay, going into our next question, I have to acknowledge a, a very small but an elephant in the room. This is a Disney movie from the 2000s. Oh, so how many direct-to-video sequels did it have? Only one. That's amazing. Yes. D- oh, oh, that's, is that counting the, the cable series or not? <laughs> Good question. They tried to make a cable series. Oh, did they? And the cable series was so bad, Disney canceled it before it aired. Oh, it never aired. No, but wow. the three episodes they did make, they smashed together. Into a direct-to-video movie. They called Milo's Return. So is that the one sequel that it had? Yes. It wasn't even intended as a feature sequel or a DVD sequel. It was three episodes of, a, of an intended TV series that they released as a sequel? Correct. I'm not expecting great things from this. They attempted to make something I can only describe as, like, the kids' cryptic, cryptid hunters club out of... Atlantis the Lost Empire because it was going to be the same team trying to take on more missions which implies they didn't use the money they got from the Atlantis trip well because <laughs> they're right back where they started oh that's a sh- that, and that's the problem with sequels the, yeah. the problem with lazy sequels we have to erase anything that was accomplished in the original and then it's like we've got to go back to Atlantis which is apparently easy enough to do they do it in like the opening they go get Milo and Kida because they need someone who can figure out all of the other secrets to do things like discover the Yeti and other things all across the map. And so it'd be this weird, like, cryptid meets where in the world is Carmen San Diego group <laughs> team adventure thing. And I have heard such awful boilingly angry comments about how awful this thing is so you have not seen i this. have not dared touch it okay because it fe- it sounds like it, it ruins every character on the way and then was too it was not good enough to even be a tv series so why is it good enough to be a movie all right well acknowledging that there was this kind of sequel 
Mm-hmm. I guess we still have our usual question, though. Exactly. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? That's interesting. <sighs> Revive would be I, the continuation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it needs it. Everyone does kind of land in a nice place. I could see more things in this world they set up with that, but I don't know if that's the same. Like, could you do stories of other adventures? Could you do with a certain of the characters without messing up the rest of their stuff? Are there other weird expeditions that our uh, benefactor here uh, contributed to with another cast of kooky characters we can learn? I'm not sure. I'm not sure anything connects strong enough to Atlantis to still be Atlantis by the end. I I think you're right about that. I would say rest in peace. I think this is is better than I remembered it being, and I would I do say screen it, but I don't think we need more. Yeah. Either a revival or a reboot. The only thing that I might have some interest in would be technically a revival because it would be in the same continuity, but I'd be interested in Tales of Atlantis. Yeah. Not more stories about Milo and his friends and their submarine. Well, their new submarine, I suppose. The old one didn't fare very well. The Ulysses too. <laughs> but we've got this whole civilization of Atlantis that existed for at least centuries, if not millennia, before it was destroyed. There may be interesting stories they could tell from and with and about that civilization. And their their heroes and their history and their adventures of exploration. I don't know that there's a very big audience for that. I'm not even sure I would watch a whole lot of that. But I'd be interested in something that used the Atlantis, uh, the Atlantis civilization and the Atlantis background that they created and the language and everything else to tell more stories from that point of view. Yeah. That's actually a good thing. They could do some fun with that. Maybe a video game. A video, Give us yeah. a, a, a an RPG adventure, but it's set back in the time before the fall of Atlantis. Yeah. This must have had a video game, by the way, didn't it? Yes, it did. Coming out in June 14th, 20, 2001 for the PlayStation, Game Boy Advanced, and Game Boy Color. <laughs> I knew it. You couldn't oh. have a, a movie... Uh, dedic- uh, a movie targeted at this audience without some kind of a video game tie-in. It had multiple. It had a it had a first-person shooter developed by Zombie Studios and published by Disney Interactive for Microsoft Windows. What? Okay, that's just odd. And the reason video games come to mind is probably that there are things about this that remind me of Final Fantasy X. Things yeah. about the design, all the water, of course, there are, are things that remind me of some of the stylings we see in Final Fantasy X. I agree, and that's one of the weird reasons why I kind of think that a reboot could work. Disney's liking making live-action versions of its movies. And weirdly enough, this is going to sound wild, there's some of the groups that have made things like the live-action Bleach movie on Netflix... Those sort of directors and those sort of stylings could do an interesting job taking the ad- action adventure Atlantis the Lost Empire and doing a live action remake. Maybe it's just me, but I'm like, this has something else that it could do with a bit more of a shown in action y style for a reboot. 
Maybe, maybe. Here I was just about to groan and throw up my hands and say, fine, call Harry Styles, ask if he wants to play Milo, fit him for eyeglasses, make your live action remake. Yeah. I'm not going to watch it, but have fun. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm, I think rest in peace is the right thing. Let, let Atlantis, the Lost Empire, you know, rest comfortably in its civilization on the seafloor <laughs> yes. of the Disney vault. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, thank you for letting me take back over and inject this thing that had... It, it's it, This was a wild, fun ride, and I remember enjoying it so much. I've enjoyed this as well. It's always fun when you take over and I get not only to see something that was important to you, but but get a sense of what was important and why and, and how you responded to it. We talked a lot about movies and things, even when you were so young, but it was... It was it, just because you were so young, it was sometimes hard to know exactly why something was as cool and influential on you as it was at the time. So it's fun to to revisit that and hear you describe now what it felt like as a kid. Yeah, those glowy lights, those intricate designs, that action adventure, but the witty dialogue. It This was a core to things <laughs> that I latched onto in other franchises elsewhere. Good. Well, I'm glad the power went out that day. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was the perfect response to the power going out that day. Yep. And assuming the power doesn't go out uh, between now and then, uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks with another podcast episode. Exactly. So where can they find you, Dad? Uh, I'll make it easy. You can go to uh, bymatthewporter.omg.lol, and uh, you'll find there links to my website and my Mastodon and my YouTube and anything else you might need, including the Draft House Diaries. Ian, uh, where can people find you? I can be found at itemcrafting.com and as itemcraftinglive on Twitch and itemcrafting on YouTube. And you can find the podcast at www.immproject.com, and that's where you can find all of our past episodes, including prior Disney movies, including the original 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You'll also find a link to our YouTube, a link to our Patreon. Thank you very much for whoever can support us there. You help keep the podcast going, and you get special bonus audio content. And there's also a link to our shop if you like t-shirts and coffee mugs and fun things like that. Exactly. Yeah, find us on the on the Discord or anything else and send us messages. You know, what movie did you go see when the power went out? <laughs> but most important, thanks very much for listening. We really appreciate you joining us. We hope you'll join us again. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>